thank you for that introduction, um, Shay. Our, our family are up here today, my whole family. It's a joy to be here. I'm just so grateful for the invitation, and it is always uh, a special joy when we get to do these kinds of things as a family. So we all came up today. It's my youngest son's first birthday. Uh, he's number, he's one today. He started speaking last week and he said, Dad, more than anything, I want to go to a Swedish village <laughs> in central California. And I said, I can make that happen. So here we are celebrating his first birthday. And um, as Shay said, I've, I've been able to enjoy just a little bit of the fruit of this church over the years. I first kind of came in contact with, with Grace Church of the Valley two, two and a bit years ago when I did the high school retreat and I just came home to Laura and I said, they are just the friendliest people. I gave up over the weekend asking folks what they did for a living because every time I asked, someone said that, well, I'm a fruit farmer. And in the end, I just said, so you're a fruit farmer too. And sure enough, they say, yeah, I am. Um, and that was just a blessing that weekend. And then this last year, uh, I've had the privilege of just instructing a few of the guys in Greek, New Testament Greek, over the course of the year. It was a joy for me. I think it was a lot of pain for them. Uh, but just another way in which I've, I've been able to uh, see how the Lord has been working through this congregation, and we praise Him for what He's doing here. Um, tonight, we're going to be in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. So turn there if you have a Bible. Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, we find the prophet Daniel. And we're going to be looking at just two verses in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. But what I want to do first to kind of set the context for those two verses is read from the beginning of the chapter. So, if you have a Bible, Daniel chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 1 until verse 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, 
and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So reads the word of the living God. Would you pray with me before we jump into the text? Father, we love you. We love your word. We love the truth. And we want to receive the truth. We pray that you would soften our hearts. Without exception, Soften our hearts this evening to receive your word. Father, be glorified amongst us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I received the invitation to come here and I heard a little bit about the, the series, I was really excited. I was excited because I love the Old Testament. And I really, really enjoy seeing how the Old Testament, the law and the prophets lay a foundation for all that we understand in the, in the New Testament. I love the series of seeing how Christ was spoken about in the Old Testament. I would love to have been there on the Emmaus Road to hear what Jesus had said as he opened up the scriptures and he showed those men all of the places that he was spoken about in the Old Testament. As I thought through where it is that we could go and spend our time this evening, Daniel 7 really was an obvious choice for me personally. The reason I say that, I spent nearly two years working in this text when I was a student in seminary and I was writing my thesis and I, and I wrote on Daniel chapter 7. Our son arrived at the end of it and as my labor of love finished, we gave him the middle name, Daniel. It's a, it's a text towards which I have a lot of uh, love uh, and, and a bias. Now, I am biased towards this text, but I will say I do believe that this text is incredibly significant 
when we think about the flow of scripture and the storyline that God has been working out through redemptive history. This text is like Dubai Airport. If you've ever been to Dubai Airport, it's a fascinating place. You could people watch there all day. Last year, 88 million passengers passed through that airport. It overtook Heathrow as the biggest airport in the world. The way in which Daniel 7 is like Dubai Airport is that it has many, many streams flowing into it and many, many coming out of it. So Dubai Airport is like this node in the center of the world that's connecting two halves. And so also Daniel 7 is this, this point in our scriptures into which so much theology flows and out of which so much theology flows. So it's a really, really important text as we try to understand Christ in the Old Testament. And in particular, the, the individual that's kind of center stage in this text is the Son of Man. The Son of Man in verse 13. Now, you may have come across that title before. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. Maybe from your reading of Daniel 7, but more likely... That would be a familiar title to your ears because of how you've come across Son of Man in the Gospels. Now, Son of Man in the Gospels is a really fascinating title to study. When you look at Son of Man in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you find is that it is a title only ever used by Jesus. So, Nobody calls Jesus the Son of Man. Nobody declares him to be the Son of Man, and yet he pronounces himself to be the Son of Man. And that in and of itself is quite curious, and there's a good theological reason for, for why that happens. Not only that, but when you look at all of the different ways that Jesus refers to himself, what you find is that Son of Man is his favorite title. More than any other name, Jesus uses Son of Man the most. It's his favorite title for himself. And we could go even further and observe that in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in every kind of ministry context. What do I mean by that? He calls himself the Son of Man in reference to very lowly, very poor situations in his life. He calls himself the Son of Man when he speaks about his suffering and what is to come. And he calls himself the Son of Man when he looks forward to his second coming. So the whole span of his life is spoken of with reference to this one individual. So what we need to do is ask the question, who is this Son of Man? The crowds in, in John chapter 12 ask him that. He's, he's being pressed in upon and once again in John 12 he declares himself to be the son of man and the crowd say, who is this son of man? They were actually asking a really good question. I would go as far to say they didn't understand just how good a question they were asking when they posed that to Jesus. And what we need to do, understanding just how prevalent that title is in the Gospels and how curious it is, what we have to do is ask, who is this Son of Man? In order to do that, in order to understand the title, we don't start in the Gospels, we have to start in the Old Testament. 
we have to start in the text that Jesus kept referring back to, namely Daniel chapter 7. So what we're going to do tonight is ask the question three times. Three times we're going to ask, who is this son of man? We're going to look at these two verses, 13 and 14, from just a slightly different angle each time. And what we'll see is that wrapped up in the name itself, in the name itself, is the glory of the gospel. As we break open the title Son of Man, what we see is that this individual is the one who has come to forgive sins. That he is God who teaches us how to worship and he instructs us how we should then live our lives. So let's look for the first time at these verses and ask the question, who is this son of man? Now, just a few minutes ago, I said this text is like Dubai Airport, and so it would stand to reason that if we're really going to understand Daniel 7, 13 through 14, we first need to give just a little bit of consideration to all the, the scripture that comes before. The son of man doesn't even occur for the first time in Daniel chapter 7. What you see as you work through the Old Testament is that in virtually every book of the Old Testament scriptures, there is reference made to the Son of Man, or the plural form, the sons of men. Two texts that are really important for understanding Daniel 7 are all the way back in Genesis. Now, we don't need to turn there. We're just going to talk through them. But two texts that we need to think about before we can even look at these verses are Genesis 3 and Genesis 11. Now Genesis 3, I know you guys have already thought about this this summer as, as somebody came and preached on Genesis 3.15. You know what happens in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobey God. Adam turns his back on the Creator, he rebels against him, he breaks the command that he was given, and they are pushed out of the garden. Now, what you must remember when you read Genesis 3 is that when Adam disobeyed in that way, he introduced sin not only into humanity, but into the whole of the created order. We can sometimes overlook that fact. There's this tight connection between Adam and the ground from which he was taken. In fact, the name Adam even just means taken from the ground. He was made of the dust. So when Adam breaks the rules and turns his back on God, sin enters into the human heart. The human race is now fallen, but so also into the created order. That means that when you look at the stars at night, they don't shine in the way that they used to shine. It means the most glorious landscape that you could ever find on planet earth is like a faded sepia image of what creation used to be before the fall. Now, just hold that narrative in your head, and now let's think through that second text, Genesis chapter 11. This is the Tower of Babel. You probably know that story too. The, the, the people are, are trying to build a tower to make a name for themselves, lest they be dispersed. God looks down on them. He thwarts their efforts and he scatters them. What is really interesting about Genesis chapter 11 is that as you examine that narrative, as you study the way in which that story has been crafted and told in the Bible, there are many, many echoes back to Genesis chapter 3. 
So what the author has done is that he's told that story in a particular way so as to intentionally connect our thoughts back to Genesis chapter 3. A lot of the language is the same. On, on the big picture, it's like a recapitulation of the fall. Think about it. God creates in Genesis 1 and 2, and then in Genesis 3, the fall happens. In Genesis 4 and following, the, the, the sin of mankind explodes, and then we get to the flood. The flood is like God wiping the slate clean. It's like God saying, let's start over again. It's almost like he's recreating. And then sure enough, immediately after, with this newly created world, we get to Genesis 11, and sinful mankind is up to their same old tricks again. The Tower of Babel incident is like a, a fall Mark II. It's a repetition of Genesis 3. Now, why am I saying all of this? Why am I leading you through this narrative? Because it's in Genesis 11 that the phrase sons of men is first found in the Bible. If we were to translate it more literally, it would be sons of Adam. The sons of men are the sons of Adam. They're the offspring of Adam. And so the narrative works perfectly. Here are the children of the one that caused all of creation to come crashing down, and they're doing exactly the same thing as their father. What that does is it sets a trajectory for the rest of Scripture. With those two texts in place and this theology established concerning the sons of Adam, the sons of men, it sets a trajectory for the rest of the Old Testament whereby every time we come across a son of man in a text or a sons of men, they are wicked, they are depraved, they are fallen, they are rebellious, they are helpless, and they need a savior. The sons of man are sin incarnate. The sons of men are characterized by their fallen nature. That is the story of these characters prior to Daniel 7. And with all of that background established, we then look at 13 and 14 in chapter 7. And what we see is the opposite. We get to Daniel chapter 7, and here we see a son of man, and he is not fallen, he is not sick, he is not sinful, he is not rebellious, but he triumphs. We get to Daniel chapter 7, and somehow the storyline takes a turn. Every other son of man prior to this portion of Scripture has been rebellious and wicked and in need of help, in need of a saviour. And now we get to this text, and we see one who is the victor. Why is that important? What's, what's going on in Daniel chapter 7? I wonder if you noticed when I read the text this, this evening, at the very beginning of the chapter, the, the vision is set with winds stirring up over the sea. Or maybe I would paraphrase and say there was a wind hovering over the sea. I wonder if you noticed at the very beginning of the chapter in verse 3, we get four beasts, four animals, rising up out of the created order. Beasts of the field, rising up out of the created order. 
Now, what's curious is that these beasts are human kings. They're human kings. And yet, Daniel, as he crafts his narrative, for some reason, he talks about them as animals, as beasts rising up out of the created order. Maybe the kind of things I'm describing to you sound familiar. What Daniel is doing is that he is telling his vision intentionally in creation-type language. He sets the vision of Daniel chapter 7 with the same kind of images as we find in Genesis chapter 1, when there was a spirit, a wind hovering over the deep, and then beasts rose up out of the created order. Now, let's just keep working through that narrative. Think through the implications of that with me. In Genesis 1, God creates, there's a wind hovering over the deep. The beasts rise up out of the created order. The next thing that happens, Genesis chapter 3, there is a beast of the field, the serpent. There is a beast of the field that comes in and he usurps man's authority. What happens in Genesis 3 at the most fundamental level, the beast of the field comes in and he usurps man's authority. He strives for an authority that does not rightly belong to him. Go forward to Daniel chapter 7. There is a wind hovering over the water. Beasts of the field rise up out of the created order. There are now four earthly human kings, but we're being told that there are beasts of the field and they're all striving for an authority that doesn't belong to them. They're all trying to usurp another's authority. The narrative is a mirror of that that we see in Genesis 1 through 3. The difference is this son of man does not fail. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam, the first son of man, failed tragically. He turned his back on the Creator, and sin entered and caused the cosmos to come crashing down. Here in Daniel chapter 7, as the narrative is told in such a way to mirror those first few chapters of our Bible, this time the Son of Man wins. He triumphs where the first Adam failed. And that is why, as we ask the question for the first time, the answer that we get, who is this son of man? He is a second Adam who reverses the fall. He is a second Adam. The first Adam failed. This one doesn't fail. And as he succeeds, he reverses that fall narrative. It shouldn't play out like this, and yet we praise God that it does. Now let's fast forward to the Gospels. Over and over and over, Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. He does it in very lowly, poor contexts. He says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And many times when Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, he is drawing on the, the humanity of his nature, his human nature. But it's more complex than that. He's doing it in a very nuanced way. When Jesus leans on that title to refer to his humanity, he's saying, I'm the second Adam. I have come to be the head of a new humanity. All of the sons of men fail. They're sinful, they're rebellious, they're wicked, they need a savior. I'm the son of man in Daniel chapter 7 who wins. And with that proclamation, he calls for your following, for your obedience. 
See, there are always implications for your life. The, the scriptures speak today into your life. The fact that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man has implications for you today. What would those implications be? It would be that you have a decision to make. This, this is a unique preaching experience for me. I love just about everything about this preaching experience. <laughs> Nearly everything. <laughs> He's confronting you. For the last three and a half years, I've had the privilege of, of ministering on one of the college campuses in LA. Cal State University, Northridge, just down the street from our house. There are 40 thousand students on that campus. Isn't that incredible? I grew up in a town of 25,000. There are 40,000 students on that campus. And every week we go there and we have some of the students from our church that are there and we would go out onto the campus and we just evangelize. We spend the afternoon talking to students, engaging with students on the matters of the gospel, the matters of the church, of God and of Christ. I realized that after just a few weeks, nearly everybody on that campus has no idea what they believe. There is virtually nobody on that campus who has any convictions about what they believe. And they're having a great time and they're living their life, but they have no idea what they believe. I want to just ask you if you know what you believe. Maybe you come to this church every week and you're part of the life of this church, but you don't have any convictions about the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never been to this church. You've been invited this evening by a friend and you don't know who Jesus Christ is. The Old Testament, before we get to the narrative about Christ, tells us that he is here to reverse the fall that he's here to, to fix the biggest problem that you have. Your heart is terribly sick with sin. You are guilty before a holy God. You are not right with him until you have followed Jesus Christ and this second Adam who will one day usher in a new creation forgives you of your sin and makes you right with God. Now you might be asking at this stage, well, how is it that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 succeeds where all other sons of men before him failed? You might be thinking, how is it that he's able to change the story so drastically if the narrative was always that the sons of men fail completely? And that's where we can ask, for a second time, who is this son of man? And what we need to do is look at just a few aspects of the text and see some curious features about this individual. Notice, first of all, his mode of transport. I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This son of man travels on the clouds. 
He travels on the clouds. Well, in the ancient Near East, which is the, the kind of cultural context in which this is written, even in the, in the Bible, in the Psalms, the clouds are reserved as a mode of transport for God. It's only God that gets to ride on the clouds, and here the Son of Man is riding on the clouds. In addition to that, notice that he is presented before the Ancient of Days, God the Father. The Bible tells us elsewhere that no one has ever seen God and lived, and here this Son of Man comes face to face with him. He's presented before him, and the vision continues without incident. Notice also the nature of his reign. He's presented with a dominion, a glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, without exception, nations and languages, should serve him. He is presented with a kingdom that shall not be destroyed, but goes on forever and ever and ever. This Son of Man is also God. He's also God. So you might have noticed this evening, and you might be thinking in your head, well, you know what, we don't actually have a Son of Man here, do we? If you're being really particular, what we have here is one who is like a son of man. And that's a good observation. That one word, like, it's just one letter in the original text, is doing a lot of weight. It's doing a lot of work. It's carrying a lot of theological weight. That one word, like, in the original is very similar to our word in English, like. What I mean by that is that a comparison is being made. As Daniel writes, one like a son of man, he's making a comparison. He's saying this individual is like the sons of men that came before. Now what that means is he has some things in common with them, right? So we've already seen one of those things, and that is that he's a human being. That's what he has in common with them. But if you think about what happens when we make a comparison, it also means that there's some points of dissimilarity. So when I say that my son is like me, I mean he has some features that are similar, but he's not identical to me. There's some things that are also different. When Daniel says this son of man is, this one is like a son of man, he's saying there's some points of similarity. He's a human, he's come in the flesh, but there's some points of dissimilarity. One dissimilarity is simply that he wins, he triumphs where all other sons of men have failed. How does he do that? Second point of dissimilarity, because he is God. How is it that this son of man triumphs, that he changes the narrative so drastically? The answer is because he is God. And so in this text, we see implied a dynamic that is explained more fully elsewhere in the Bible. In this text, we see the dynamic at work of an individual who is both human and God at the same time. Now fast forward with me again to the Gospels and think through Jesus' use of Son of Man. Over and over and over again, I am the Son of Man. Sometimes he uses that to refer to his humanity in a very special way, to say I'm the second Adam who's come to reverse the fall. Sometimes... He uses Son of Man to talk about his deity. Now, isn't that curious? If I had said to you tonight before the message, what does Jesus mean when he says, I'm the Son of Man? My guess is many of you that have read the Gospels would have said, well, isn't he talking about the fact he's a human? 
And in part, that's right. Actually, most often, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, most often when Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man, he's making a claim to be God. Referencing Daniel chapter 7, he make, he's making a claim to be God. So think with me about when, when they lower the paralytic through the roof. Do you remember that? In Mark chapter 2, they're just desperate to get to this man. They rip off the roof and they lower down the paralytic because the crowds are just pressing in and Jesus looks at him. And do you remember what he says? Two things. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. And the teachers of the law are gathered around and they're grumbling in their hearts. And Jesus, knowing all things, confronts them. They say, only God has the authority to forgive sins. And he responds and he says, the Son of Man can forgive sins. And they hate it because they understand their Old Testaments and they know that he's saying, I'm God and I can forgive sin. Or think about the end of the gospel narrative when Jesus is on trial and the authorities face him and they say, are you the Son of God? And he confesses, he says, I am. But he goes further. He, he augments his confession, he adds to it. He says, by the way, I'm also the Son of Man. And it's when he says that that they go crazy. They cover their ears and they scream and they crucify him because of his claim. Because they understand what he's saying. They understand. When Jesus claims to be the Son of Man, they know that he's saying, I am God. Now, what does this mean? Again, I don't want you to leave this evening thinking that this old, old book is not speaking into your life. Every single word is inspired by God and it is timeless. It is for you right now. So when Jesus speaks of him being the son of man as his favorite title, claiming not only to be truly fully human in the flesh as a second Adam to reverse the fall, but also claiming to be God himself, he is confronting you with a choice. You need to choose whether you will worship him or not. You have to decide whether you will bow down your knee and worship the Son of Man or choose a different path. Now remember, there are four other kings in this narrative. Be very careful because there are four other kings in Daniel's vision and all of them are destroyed. Daniel chapter 7 teaches us that this God is the God that will one day reign on this earth forever. He will come and establish his kingdom. He will usher in a new creation. He is the one that triumphs. 
And though you may not see his reign manifested fully right now, though you may look around you and in society see anything but seemingly Jesus Christ reigning on his throne, rest assured the day is coming really soon when the Son of Man will appear on the clouds of heaven. And on that day, an authority will be made manifest such as you have never, ever seen before. And you will want to be found faithful. On that day, you will want to be one who has given your life to following the Son of Man and worshipping Him. Now, it's not going to be easy. We live in maybe the most pluralistic age in all of history, meaning there are more worldviews out there than ever before. There are more claims to the truth than ever before. To raise your children in this age is a very high calling because invading our lives, invading the church and invading our families are hundreds of other claims to the truth. There are four other kings in this narrative and they are all destroyed. It would be hard to follow the Son of Man now but he will appear in the twinkling of an eye. And when he does, his authority will be made manifest fully. And you will want in that day to be found faithful to him. Okay, we've asked the question twice. Let's ask it a third time. Who is this son of man? The first time we saw that he is the second Adam who reverses the fall. Jesus comes perfectly in human flesh to make a way possible for you to be reconciled to God and enter into a new humanity. The second time we saw that he is God and he reigns forever and he demands your worship. The third time, who is this son of man? He is the king who suffers. He is the king who suffers. Now, when you look at these two verses, 13 and 14, it doesn't strike you that there's a whole lot of suffering going on. 13 and 14, which is the climax of the vision, is all about the Son of Man receiving glory and honor and dominion and power, and he doesn't seem to be suffering. I want to suggest to you that in the bigger picture of Daniel chapter 7, what we learn is that the road, the pathway to his glory is the pathway of suffering. Now, how does that work? Daniel chapter 7 is really interesting because it's written in two halves. The first half is the vision itself, and we read that this evening. The second half is the explanation of that vision. In the first half, which is the vision itself, Daniel says and shows us the Son of Man is the centerpiece. He's the, the, the centerpiece of the vision. When you get to the explanation of the vision, what's really interesting is that the Son of Man is nowhere to be found. The centerpiece of the vision is not mentioned in the vision's explanation, which is really interesting. Actually, the person or the people that are mentioned, look at verse 25, are the saints of the Most High. 
And when you read the explanation to the vision, what you see is that the saints of the Most High have kind of been substituted in for the Son of Man, where he would be mentioned, now the saints of the Most High are mentioned. So, so how do we explain this, this substitution? Well, what Daniel is doing is he's, he's leaning on a concept that is all over the Old Testament, and it's a concept that you know already. It's a concept where the king and his people are so tightly knit together that you can exchange one for the other and you just know that both are in view. So think about uh, David and Goliath, just by way of example. I could say to you, David beat Goliath, and you'd say, yes, that's a true statement. I could also say to you that on that day, Israel beat the Philistines. And you would say, yes, that's a true statement. But if you think about it, if we're being picky, there was nobody on the battlefield from the army of Israel that day besides David himself. Israel were nowhere to be seen. They were cowering and they were scared. And yet you just said it's a true statement that Israel beat the Philistines. Why? Because you understand that the king and his people are so tightly knit together that we substitute one for the other and both are in view. We even do this today in, in sports, right? Michael Phelps won the gold medal. America won the gold medal. You've got no issue with either statement, and yet we know America wasn't in the pool because the leader and his people are, are knit together. And so what's going on in the vision and the explanation is that the Son of Man's here, and then we have his people over here, and both are in view. Now, the implication of that is that whatever happens to one happens to the other. Whatever happens to one happens to the other. And what we see at the end of the explanation is that, sure enough, the people receive the kingdom, just as the Son of Man received the kingdom. Whatever happens to one happens to the other. But now look with me at verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. They shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall begin to be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. He, being one of the, the bad guys in the vision, shall wear out the saints of the Most High. In the explanation, we're just given a little bit more detail about how this kingdom comes about, and we see that the saints along the way suffer. They endure a time of suffering. And remember that dynamic, king with his people, what happens to one happens to the other. The implication is, if the saints suffer, then the king has suffered first. The king suffers also. So now fast forward to the Gospels. Consider again with me how Jesus is always using the phrase son of man. Have you noticed in your reading of Matthew and Mark and, and Luke in particular, when Jesus teaches his disciples about the fact that he must suffer, what title does he use? It is the son of man unsurprisingly, because we know Daniel chapter 7 and we understand what's going on in this vision. And as he refers back to the Old Testament and he says to his disciples, I am not the Savior you think I am. I have not come to rule and to reign right now, but you know what? I have to go and die. The title that he uses in those contexts is the Son of Man because it is knit into the Old Testament narrative that the Son of Man has to suffer and what's the very next thing that Jesus says after that? He says, you guys, you need to take up your cross and follow after me. 
No surprises. Daniel 7 says the Son of Man has to suffer and the people go with him. And that is the path towards glory. One of the most ongoing, consistent battles in the Christian life is to remember that the cross comes before the crown. It's perhaps one of the simplest statements that we could make, and yet one of the hardest things for us to embrace. One of the most disgusting lies that's coming out of the church, so many churches today, is that to embrace Jesus Christ means a life of comfort and immediate temporal blessing. The scriptures teach that the cross comes before the crown. And there is nothing that we can do to change that order. There is nothing that we can do to take away the cross and just receive the crown. The Christian path is one of suffering. The Christian road of discipleship. The biblical map of following Jesus is one that takes up a cross, who goes where your king went first. And I don't want to mislead anyone this evening if you've never considered the issues of the gospel and what it means to follow Jesus. Let me be very plain with you. To become a Christian does not mean that life gets easy. I was saved at 21 and I remember when I was looking into the issues of the Christian faith for a whole year beforehand, one of the excuses that I kind of threw out was, you know what, I just think religion is a crutch. But people just lean on religion. I think it's just the easy way out from life's hardships. And I was so grateful for the, the man that was witnessing to me, and he said it's the exact opposite. The Christian life is one that follows after the king, and the king is the son of man who suffers. And I, I don't know what that suffering will look like. It will be different for every single person here. But you can rest assured that God is sovereign. He is intent on bringing about his good purposes in your life. He will bring about glory at the right time. But the pathway to glory is suffering. Why? Because that's the route that the Son of Man took towards the kingdom. I have a friend back home. He's maybe in his 60s now. And I remember when he told me about how his father became a Christian. His father, when he was a young man, loved soccer. And he used to have a friend on the soccer field who hated the church, hated the things of God, had a hard heart towards Christianity and was very public about this. And my friend's father, his name was Bobby, he got saved. Somebody invited him to a church service. The gospel was preached and he was saved. And he knew in just the first few weeks, you know what, I have to go and tell my friend on the soccer field. And I know that he hates Christianity. 
and I have to go and tell him I've become a Christian. And he was really nervous about this, and he didn't want to do it. And eventually he plucked up the courage, and he went and told his friend, he said, look, I've got something to tell you, I've become a Christian. And his friend, who had a hard heart towards the things of God, looked at him, and he said one thing. He said, Bobby, if you're going to be a Christian, be a real Christian. Be a real Christian. I don't know many of you here this evening. I don't know your spiritual state. Again, some of you are here maybe for the first time ever, and we are just thrilled that you've come. There are probably some that come here all the time, go to church every Sunday. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're following after Christ. As we've seen the Son of Man in this text three times, as the one who opens up the pathway to glory by the gospel that saves, make sure that you are following after him. Cast yourself upon Christ and be his disciple. If there's any uncertainty in your mind, please speak with someone this evening. Ensure that you are a disciple of the Son of Man. Would you pray with me to close? Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the ministry of the Son of Man. Thank you that you sent him in human flesh, the God-man, Jesus Christ, perfectly, fully, truly human, perfectly, fully, truly God. Thank you that he walked the path of suffering and died on the cross. And that that life and death and his resurrection makes possible the way for us to come to you and be reconciled. We are sinful to the core and we need reconciliation. We need help. We need forgiveness for our sin. We need salvation. And the Son of Man is the key. He is the answer to our greatest need. I pray for believers here that have been saved by your grace. Father, that we would follow all the more after the Son of Man. Teach our hearts to worship him yet more. To love Christ and to obey him. Father, I pray for any that come regularly and yet do not know you who are in this congregation and yet are not in union with Christ. Please quicken their hearts unto repentance, that they would turn from their sin and embrace the Son of Man. And Lord, for anyone here who has come this evening, doesn't come to church, doesn't know the things of you, please Again, we pray for the gift of salvation. Work out in their hearts your glorious salvation. And may it all be to the praise of your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.